Well, hello from me. My name's Diff, if, uh, if I haven't met you before. Um, and we're actually, right now, we're at the end of a little four-part mini-series that we've had over this holiday break. So I did uh, the first two, and then Wes uh, spoke last week, and, and now this is part four, so this is the last part where we're wrapping up the whole thing. And we've called this mini-series The Minefield. And I thought it might be helpful now just to do a little bit of a recap over where we've been before we kind of launch into this last concluding uh, conversation today. <clears throat> we started with discussing how humanity's desire for unconstrained and lawless freedom resulted in our desire to own things and people, to see everyone and everything in the world as standing reserves, stuff there to be used by us for our own ends whenever we wanted. We then discussed how this played itself out specifically in relationships and how it ends in an unconscious obsession with control which always leads to conflict. Two people that want control, when they meet together, that's going to result in conflict every time. Wes then last week practically discussed how our decisions are not just our own, uh, how everything we do is connected to other people, and in this way we cannot make claims about things being only ours, because absolutely nothing is only ours. Everything and everyone is connected. Every choice we make has implications for other people. I think that's a really important thing and I love the way that Wes spoke about it last week to remind us that this, there's a lie of individualism that's out there all the time now where we want to believe that we can do stuff and that it's got no implications for other people but it's just not true. And so because of all this there is a responsibility that we all have to recognise the way that our desires for control and untethered freedom as well as our obsession with rampant individualism results in conflict and ultimately is inconsistent with living like Christ, which is what we're called to do. So today we're finishing it off. Um, and this is the good news at the end of the bad news. As I said, um, there's four parts now, so we kind of get to the happy ending. Although this is still a challenging, this is still a challenging uh, way to finish. And uh, we're calling today life as gift. This idea of the gift we're going to see throughout today, is the opposite of the obsession that we have with ownership. And therefore, this idea of the gift works counter to it. It, it kind of counters this ownership obsession. I've started each one of my sessions, uh, weeks one and two, with a passage from 1 Corinthians. And we're going to do the same thing today. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it up, uh, we'll be spending a lot of time in 1 Corinthians today. And this particular passage from 1 Corinthians probably is one of the top five or top three uh, most famous passages in the Bible. So if you think of what's a famous passage in 1 Corinthians, well, you'll probably guess which one we're talking about. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. There it is, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's uh, a big famous passage, right? I'm sure we've all heard it before. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard it. This is, this is, this is the time that agnostics who have nothing to do with the Bible decide to get biblical just for a couple of minutes in their life and they kind of trot out that one thinking, oh, this is nice and maybe we should have some Bible at a wedding ceremony for some reason. We don't really know why, but we hear it at weddings a lot, right? Uh, and... Why do people do it? Well, because probably they've heard it at other people's weddings and they thought, that sounds nice. 
And that sounds true and it's kind of sweet, so let's put that there. And it is. I mean, it is those things. It is true. It's, it's beautiful. And it's filled with goodness and truth. But you know, the Bible, or in the very least, individual books, it's a package deal. You don't get to choose the part that you like and ignore the rest of it, right? That would be kind of like um, getting a recipe book out and just following steps three, seven, and eight. Or, and just using a couple of the ingredients, maybe four of the ingredients. Like, if you tried to do that, you would make something, but you wouldn't make the thing that the recipe was trying to help you to make, right? And it probably wouldn't taste very good either. Um, or maybe if you're making a chocolate cake and you just saw the ingredient chocolate and just ate that on the couch, well, that would be nice, but it certainly wouldn't be a chocolate cake, so you wouldn't be doing the thing that you set out to do, you wouldn't be doing the thing that the recipe told you to do. So just like a recipe, we can't stop reading at the end of the nice bit here. We can't just grab this nice little thing here and leave it by itself. We've got to remember that this book, Corinthians, has a context. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he's saying stuff to them. So what does he say next? What does he say after this? He says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what does this tell us? How does this help? It's a bit mysterious, maybe it doesn't really help at all. You can kind of see why this part isn't mentioned in weddings, though, right? I mean, it would be kind of weird if someone just continued reading and they started talking about prophecies and tongues and stuff like that in weddings. That would be, that would be a weird thing to happen at a wedding ceremony. Although probably a great deal of ceremonies would really benefit from reading the bit about growing up and thinking like adults and not children anymore. That might be helpful. But what that extra bit, this extra bit here tells us is that what Paul is saying is that love is greater than some things, right? That's really what it's all about. Love is greater than stuff. He's really unashamedly saying that love is greater than tongues and greater than prophecy and even greater than faith and hope, which is a pretty intense thing to say, right? And, and I think there's another sermon there to even talk about, well, what does that mean? I think that those three things are really kind of intrinsically connected and so you probably can't separate them like that. But the... Interesting thing for me when I read this was um, I noticed that there's this whole chunk about thinking like a grown-up in here. Now, it says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And this is a bit of a weird thing to include in this whole diatribe on love, right? I've heard this verse before. I've heard, and I'm sure you have, I've heard, you know, people, people kind of trot this one out, but they don't necessarily give us the context a lot of time. This is the kind of verse you hear at men's camps and at high school graduations and stuff. All right, stop acting like children. It's time to start acting like adults. But I've actually never, in all the times I've heard it talked about, recognised that it's actually part of and follows directly from this really famous thing about love. There's obviously a real connection here for Paul to insert this thing about, now I'm an adult, I'm going to start thinking like an adult, in the middle of talking about love. So how is this connected? Probably to understand that, I think we need more context. So 
Rather than jumping randomly into the middle of a passage at a time that looks like it's nice to us, we've got to look at the context of what comes before it. Why was Paul talking about love? Why did he start this discussion? So this is what he said immediately before. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. This is a much bigger picture, right? Maybe, maybe we could say, actually, this is how much should be read at wedding ceremonies, right? Don't just give us the nice thing about love. Talk about what real love is really like and how important it really is. Can you hear the tone in this? This is not necessarily the lovey-dovey thing that we may have first thought. This thing that people quote at weddings about the nature of love actually is beginning to sound like it might have come right in the middle of some kind of rebuke from Paul, like an admonishment about something. Paul here is directly discussing some spiritual gifts and explaining that without them, they're nothing. Listen to what he says. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned... If I have faith to remove mountains, that's a lot of faith. <laughs> if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all of that stuff but I don't have love, I am nothing. I gain nothing. Those things without love are nothing. That's a really big deal. That's really intense. But I still feel like we need a little bit more context. We're at the beginning of chapter 13 here. Uh, and so you might go, well, we're at the beginning of the chapter, where is there to go? Well, the chapters have been inserted afterwards. Paul didn't get to the end of chapter 12 and be like, well, that's the end of chapter 12, now I'll start something new in chapter 13. These are things that have been added centuries later in the uh, writing down and translating of the Bible in order to make things kind of more understandable and easier to find. And a lot of the time, the people that inserted them did try to put them at the end of certain ideas, but that doesn't mean that things are unrelated to each other. So go back, let's have a look at what he says at the end of chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a more excellent way. That's the thing that directly precedes if I speak in the tongues of angels but have not love, I'm a clanging symbol. I will show you a more excellent way. That's what Paul's talking about here. The whole of chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. And it seems as though, if you read chapter 12, that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because in this church, people are fighting, squabbling, quibbling about whose spiritual gift is the more important spiritual gift. This is the part... Um, the whole bit that you might have heard about with the, you know, saying the eye doesn't say to the hand, I don't need you. This is the part reminding us that we are a body and that all parts are required. So perhaps this sheds some light on what Paul was talking about later on in chapter 13 when he said to put away childish things and stop thinking like children. Because this is a real childish way to act, Right? to say, oh, the thing that I do is the most important thing. You, you, that, what you do, that doesn't really matter. We need to focus more on me, right? 
he's rejecting the minefield, the thing that we've been talking about for the last three weeks. He's, he's, he's talking about it and he's saying, this is, this is not the way to act. Let's put away childish things. Let's put away this way of thinking where we want to own everything. He's rebuking this obsession with ownership, this childish obsession with control and conflict and competition all the time. And how does he address it? What is his solution? He tells us the more excellent way, which is love. The greatest way. Love, therefore, is the solution. Love is the way to disarm the minefield. But of course, love needs defining. You've always got to define your terms, and probably there aren't many terms that need more defining these days than the word love. The word love has been hijacked by everyone. Everyone wants to say that their cause is the cause of love and other people that oppose them are on the cause of hate, right? Okay, so you might remember uh, the, cult, the, cultural, the cultural left of the, the guys that I have particular affection for doing this. Um, you might remember when the um, same-sex marriage bill was passed in the States, right, when it became legal over there, and there were placards and signs and people chanting and people putting it on Facebook, this, these two words, love wins. Remember that? Love wins. Well, I agree. I agree. I think that love does win. But I don't think that the love I'm talking about is the same love that they were talking about on those signs. If we want a definition, we don't need to go any further than the verse that we just talked about, the famous verse, 1 Corinthians 13. So this time, we're going we're gonna to read it again. And this time... I, the first time I read it, I purposely just read it like offhand, like, oh, you've heard this before, right? But let's really read this. Let's really hear this. Let's really let these words penetrate our heart and not just go in our ears and we nod and we agree. And we, mm, yeah, it's pretty words, right? Let's really recognize what's being said here. Love is patient. That's me. I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I can't... I'm, Obviously, I don't have love, right? Because I know that I struggle with patience. Love is patient. I want you to, we're going to take time with this because I want you to think about it for yourself. I want you to notice as well that this is a very particular kind of language that's getting used here. Paul isn't saying people who are loving are patient. He's saying love is patience. Is is one of the most powerful words in the English language, is denotes sameness. It's the same thing. Right? Love is patience. So if you, if you think you're a pretty loving person and you don't have much patience, you, you, there's a category error there, right? Like, kind of that's not true. That's kind of impossible. So I told you it was going to be challenging. <laughs> this is rough. It's rough on me, trust me. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Now, you might think, you know what, I'm actually, I'm okay with this. There's people, I, I, there's, uh, the people that I love, I am patient with and kind with. And I don't envy or boast. I'm not arrogant or rude to them. But you've made a mistake. You've made a terrible mistake in the start of that sentence by saying, the people that I love. You don't get to choose the people that you love. Our call is not to love the people that are easy to love, the people that love us back. That is not, that's not what Christ did. That's not what our calling is. 
This patience and kindness and not envying and boasting and arrogance and you know, not being arrogant, not being rude, this love is the love that we have for everyone. But it gets worse, and it certainly gets worse for me. Look at this one. Love does not insist on its own way. That's massive. It's massive in marriages. It's massive for me as a parent with my kids. Good grief. This one is massive for me as a parent with my kids. Love is not irritable. Man, I get irritated with my kids sometimes. Kids are good at that, right? But, you know, this is a reason why, you know, people have said in the past, you know, marriage doesn't make you happy, but it does make you holy. And if you want to be really holy, you can have some kids, right? Because that's, that's what they do. They purge you, man. This is, this is purgatory on earth, having kids. It's a good thing. We need it. We, I didn't realize how selfish I was, right, until I got married. And then I really didn't realize how selfish I was until I had kids. And every other kid I have is like, you're more and more selfish. You didn't realize this. Love is not resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This is no easy love. This is certainly not the love that people are writing about on those signs. Right? This is not some mere affection that I happen to have for someone for, at this moment in time. This is not some emotional attachment that I have or physical attraction that I have. That's not what this love is. This is brutal love. And this is a love that is antithetical. This is the opposite to selfishness. This love cannot exist within selfishness. This is a love that rejects an obsession with ownership and replaces it with the idea of giving yourself as a gift. You give yourself as a free gift. Now, in order to really get this stuff to sink in, I just want to quickly remind us of the problem um, by very quickly discussing a theory by one of my favourite guys, a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. And he developed this way of understanding people's journey through life as three stages. Students in my classes at school here will have heard this before, so they can explain it to you afterwards if you want them to. So, Kierkegaard has these three stages, and he says that, that in life people go through these three stages. The first is the aesthetic, the second is the ethical, and the third is the religious. Now, the aesthetic stage is typified by an obsession with pleasure, personal pleasure. That's what the aesthetic stage means. That's what everything kind of centres around. That's the purpose that we, that we give ourselves when we're in the aesthetic stage. And he says that there are three different types of people in the aesthetic stage. There's the hedonist, the busy man of affairs, and the cultivated aristocrat. So the hedonist is kind of like your base level aesthete, right? Your hedonist is your kind of eat, drink, and be merry, let's have a party, let's have a good time. Very kind of... Um, animalistic kind of urges, you know, just satisfy that thing that you want right now, go out there and get it and do it. Um, if you've ever read Eat, Pray, Love, which I haven't, uh, it's basically that. Do what you want to fulfill yourself, okay? The second one, Busy Man of Affairs, looks like it's not as interested in pleasure, but is still deep down, this core is selfish pleasure. Because the Busy Man of Affairs is the person who finds pleasure in success in the world. And success at the thing that they have made important. But they get pleasure from that. So yeah, it might look like it's less of an aesthetic obsession with pleasure than the hedonist, but it's still operating under the same mechanism. It's still about pleasure. The third one, the cultivated aristocrat, is like the hedonist 2.0, like the hedonist evolved, right? So if you're going to think the hedonist is someone, you know, sitting on the couch, drinking a goon bag, eating KFC, watching Home and Away, well... <laughs> If you don't know what a goon bag is, I'll tell you later, but that's my childhood. 
Not childhood, not little childhood. <laughs> Adolescence. You talk to my parents about that, maybe. But, um, so that's, that might be the hedonist, but the cultivated aristocrat is like wine, cheese, and the opera. But, and, it, and it doesn't seem like hedonism. It doesn't seem like obsession with pleasure because it looks classy and it doesn't look like that's the reason they're doing it but that's still the same mechanism running deep down in it right a person who reads Shakespeare for pleasure doesn't look like a hedonist to someone who doesn't understand Shakespeare but if that's the only reason and if and it's and if it's still based in that kind of selfish reason well then it's still operating under the same thing now to transition out of the aesthetic stage and into the ethical stage Kierkegaard says that what needs to happen is a person makes a commitment that commitment can be to a person a place a role an organization or a cause, or anything else. The most important thing simply is that it is not a commitment to the self. It is a commitment to an other. It doesn't have to be another person, although it usually is, because that's the easiest kind of thing to make a commitment to, or the most obvious thing. So we would think of this a lot of the time as marriage. That's the example that the kids come up with in class. That's kind of what it is. Now, <coughs> there's, Kierkegaard is brutal, right? So Kierkegaard would say such things as, you can't go backwards. This is what kids always ask me. Can you go backwards? Can you be ethical for a bit and then go back to aesthetic? No, you can't. And I'll explain why uh, in a second. Now, the transition from the ethical to the religious is a transition of faith, and it's faith in commitment to God. Kierkegaard was writing at a time when he, he felt like Christianity had been emptied of its radicalness. Everyone was kind of religious, but no one was really doing anything with that religion. Uh, and so Kierkegaard was brutal in the way that he talked about what a religious person really looks like and his example is Abraham. Abraham's his example. He calls Abraham the knight of infinite resignation, the knight of faith. Why is Abraham a knight? Well because Kierkegaard grapples with what Abraham actually would have gone through when he was told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Right? He says and he and he talks about it in his book Fear and Trembling. He goes through I think nine different um, iterations of what Abraham may have thought about. He says to his wife, see you later, just going to make a sacrifice with Isaac here. Even in that, that is a massive thing to say to your wife, knowing that you're going to come back and have to say, actually, yeah, no, I, I killed the guy, right? Like, that's brutal. That moment of having that discussion, of saying goodbye. And then this is not like a, this is not, you know, God didn't say, hey, Abraham, I want you to kill your son who I promised you and, you know, was a miracle birth in the first place and I did tell you that all these generations are going to come from you, um, you know, more than the stars in the sky and the sands on the beach. These are all the people and really Isaac's the person who that's going to happen through. I'm going to tell you, I, I want you to go and sacrifice him but don't worry, there's going to be a sheep there. You're not going to have to go through with it. I mean, we have that. We have, the, we have the hindsight, right? We know that that's what happens and so a lot of the time the story isn't as gripping as it should be but man... Think about what Abraham went through. And it wasn't just like a five-minute trip up the mountain. This was three days. Camping at night, awkward conversations around the campfire, I would imagine. Uh, what do you say to your son, knowing that this is what's going to happen? And it's not like Isaac knew. Um, so this is, this is why he calls him an infant, a knight of infinite resignation, because Abraham was infinitely resigned to following God. He was a knight of faith because his faith and his re resignation to following God came above all else, above his commitment even to what he understood of morality, because murder is wrong. So you can see Kierkegaard's got some pretty high standards <laughs> when it comes to 
what this true religious commitment looks like. So at this stage, uh, I, I usually read out to my students a description of what the aesthetic stage looks like. So um, bear with me, we're going to read through this. It's totally worth reading. Have a bit of a listen, and while we're reading, see if you can hear echoes to that uh, little passage from Acedia and its discontents that I read in the first service and the first um, message of this series. Right, so this is explaining the aesthetic stage, stage one. The aesthetic stage, characterised by the pursuit of pleasure as the motivation for one's actions and one's purpose, eventually leads to a satiety and a boredom. Eventually, the sought-after pleasure ceases to satisfy and the individual seeks a solution. The solution, if he chooses to remain an aesthete, is rotation. The aesthete constantly rotates the roles, places and people in his life. So basically that's saying, okay, I'm bored, what's next? I'm bored with you, who's next? I'm bored with this, what's next? I'm bored in this job, what's next? Constantly moving, constantly needing more stuff to feed you because that's the way that the aesthete sees the world. There's stuff to entertain, stuff to feed, stuff to give pleasure. By avoiding commitments to any one particular thing or person or role in life and remaining outside of life as a spectator of life, the aesthete can continually pursue new and different experiences of the generalised abstraction of this chosen pleasure and discard them once he becomes bored moving on to a new one. That word discard was a word that was used that we talked about in the first uh, message in this series. Discarding things when we've drained them of uh, their temporary pleasure. In this way, the aesthete avoids intense pleasures or pains associated with close intimacy and commitment, whether to a love, a friend, a cause or a role. Therefore, he must continually distract himself with variety of persons, experiences or vocations. As one might guess, even this solution disintegrates into a cynical apathy and to the athlete's conclusion that all actions lead to regret. The athlete has been merely role-playing up to this point and reveals to no one his true inner self. In fact, he has no true inner self to reveal at this point. The multiple roles are pleasurable distractions for his own narcissistic satisfaction. In reality, his inner self is a splintered, fragmented one. Rather than being free of society's dictates as the aesthete thinks he is, he inadequately defines himself by a multiplicity of socially defined roles, all of which are incoherent and complicated in the one person. Stated harshly, his life is a masquerade of role-playing to hide his inner emptiness. It's brutal stuff. When I share this with my students in senior high, usually fairly quickly, either by the looks on their face or by them admitting it, they feel pretty convicted. They feel like you know, they can see this. They're agreeing and realising that they see this everywhere, all over the place. Uh, and they see it in themselves as well. Now, Kierkegaard would suggest that these three stages are chronological. You move through one to the next, but that moving through them is not a guarantee. It is entirely possible for people to remain in the aesthetic stage their entire life. And this is where children start. If you know kids, you know that that's kind of the way they operate, right? Really little ones. But this is not where humanity is meant to finish. But my students, and I'm sure that you'll agree with them, recognise that there are a great many adults in this stage. Right? This is not like just because you graduate school, all of a sudden you graduate into the ethical realm. 
This is not the way that the world is. And before, when we talked about, can you go backwards? Well, Kierkegaard would say, no, you can't go backwards. You heard the language in there of rotation, right? If you think you've committed to something and you go into the ethical realm, and then 10 years later, you drop your commitment to that person or that thing, well, Kierkegaard would say, no, you're always in the aesthetic realm. That was just a really long rotation, right? Commitment means commitment. Commitment means committing past the point where it no longer is giving you the pleasure, no longer filling you and feeding you the way that you want the thing to. I mean, Kierkegaard's brutal. It really is. So perhaps this is a place where we can apply Paul's admonishment to put away childish things and start to think and reason like adults, moving out of the aesthetic stage. The minefield is part of our fallen nature. Little kids go kind of through this seeing everything and saying mind to it without even really necessarily recognising what they're doing. But it's not where people are meant to stay. As I said two weeks ago, adults are not necessarily more holy than children. They just have more holy-sounding justifications for doing whatever they want. Right? Same thing for this. But when we get to this stage in talking about it in class, usually the question that comes up is, well, how do we get out of it? How do, we get out of, how, do, how does someone get out of the aesthetic stage? Kierkegaard says this comes through making a commitment, and this is necessarily a leap of faith because you're leaving what you know, which is your own pleasure, and you're committing yourself to something else that you have no control over. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how this is really what is happening in marriage, right? And that there's a kind of a, there's a faith, a leap of faith that happens in getting married to someone because you don't have control over that person. And that's what's required. Commitment is always this leap of faith. But I would add to this, and I would say that this commitment, for it to be real, needs to be made in love. Think again how we've defined love. Love is patient, kind, not envying or boasting or arrogant or rude or insisting on its own way or irritable or resentful. That's the loving commitment of self to another. It's what we can call seeing ourselves as a gift to other people. Expecting nothing in return, gifting ourselves. So this is where it all ties together, hopefully. Wes talked last week about how we are not just individuals, but the very, by very fact that we are human means that we are part of a community. A community made you. Right? Humanity is intrinsically connected to community. We're made for community and we're made by community. Which is why, if you've ever heard this saying from uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, that hell is other people, he's completely wrong. Completely, it's the complete opposite of that. Hell is not other people. Hell is yourself. Heaven is other people. And for those people who believe that hell is other people, they'll get what they want. Total isolation in the hellish prison of their own mind. If you remember what Satan said, that I talked about in the first session of this, um, upon being thrown into hell in Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, he said, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And there's more to that quote, a lot more. He also says, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. That's what Satan is doing. He's locking himself up in the prison of his own mind, isolating himself from others and from reality. Sin is isolating. That's what it does. Pride is isolating. Control and ownership and conflict are isolating. C.S. Lewis has written an amazing book that I encourage you to read called The Great Divorce, 
And in it, he paints a picture of hell which is nothing more than individual chosen isolation. The people in hell constantly move further and further away from each other because the only thing that they love is themselves. And they can't handle being around other people. Hell is not other people. Hell is just yourself alone forever. Community is what we were designed for because we were designed in the image of a community. The Trinity, three in one, always pouring themselves out in self-giving, freely chosen gift of love and communion made us. God said, let us make man in our image and then later it is not good for man to be alone. We were made by communion to image communion for communion. This is our telos. That, that word means purpose. It's the thing that we were designed for. And we only become good and right and truly human in so much as we fulfill our telos. This is the way that this idea of telos works. Think of it like this. A coffee mug is a good, proper, right, true coffee mug in as much as it does what a coffee mug is designed to do, to hold coffee and make it easy to drink. But if we, put, if we take out the base of a coffee mug, it's not a good coffee mug anymore, is it? It doesn't do what it's designed for. Coffee will go right through it. In fact, you could say it's not even a coffee mug anymore. It's just a cylinder with a handle. Right? It's no longer a coffee mug because it's not doing the thing that it was designed to do. Same thing goes for humanity. A human is a good, proper, right, true human when they do or are what they are designed for, which is to be in communion, to be in community. So when at the project we've got on our sign out the front there that our goal is restoring true humanity, we're talking about restoring us to our telos, to our purpose. And a major part of that, I think probably the major part of it, out of which everything else comes, is to be in communion with God and with other people. And true communion is only possible in love. True community cannot exist in the mind field, or what you could call the mind field, a setting up of individual minds pitted against each other to see who wins, who has the most dominion, who has the most control, who has the most freedom, the competition. So this leads us to understand the nature of self as gift. And for me, this has been a massive revelation. I don't know if you can hear it in the way that I talk about it, but um, this book, A Cedar and Its Discontents, which I started quoting, which had that quote that I think really well mirrors and echoes that stuff about from Kierkegaard about the aesthetic stage. I started off uh, the series quoting from that, and we can end the series quoting from it. And here's how it explains this idea of gift. The fundamental structure of the world is gift, or self-communicative love. And the nature of our existence is to act, to operate, rather than simply to exist. To be is to act, to operate for self-donation. Creation is best read through the hermeneutics of the gift. God creates for no other reason than love. And from that love, God gives rise to the good and is well pleased with the good which is created. As such, creation signifies gift, a fundamental and radical gift. That is, an act of giving in which the gift comes into being precisely from nothing. Precisely because created and not necessary, all creation is a gift. The human bearing the image of God through no merit or logical necessity is able to grasp the meaning of gift and be a gift herself. Persons are God's gift to a gifted world. 
an elevation and ennobling of what was already good into that which bears the divine image and in time will hold the divine image's incarnation. See, we are designed to be gifts to each other, to other people. And our image, our model, the man who was more human than any other human, is Christ. He had the greatest love by giving the greatest gift, himself. And that's our calling, to be like him. So what does this look like? It means giving yourself. It means giving your skills, your abilities, your money, your time. That last one might be the hardest one for a lot of us, giving our time. But it's not just giving them. It can't ever be just the giving of them. Because remember, you can give up yourself for the flames and have faith to move mountains, but without love, it's nothing. So this is a giving that's coming from a foundation of love. And the same goes the other way around. You cannot say that you have all this love for people and live a selfish life. That's not what love is. You cannot be all talk when it comes to love. Love is in the doing, not in the saying. So what happens a lot of the time at this point is that we can start to think about the ways that we're generous, right? We can just be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's easy for us to think about the way that we gift ourselves to other people and to things and therefore think that we've got the love thing squared away, right? But we need to be a little bit more analytical here with ourselves. See, maybe you're generous with your money. Does that necessarily mean that there is love involved in that generosity? Maybe it's easy for you to be generous with your money. Maybe you've got a lot of money. So it, you just kind of, you know, it just comes out of your bank account every week and you don't even notice it's there and you're not really necessarily engaged with it. I'm not saying that's necessarily the case, but it could be. See, because if you're really generous with your cash and then you're miserly with your time, I think that probably tells you more about where your love is at. Right? Or likewise, you know, if you're really generous with your time, but as soon as it starts costing you money, you call it quits there, well, that should be a bit of an indication of where the love is at, right? See, I think the saying is true. Love wins. True love, the way it's been defined in Corinthians, wins. But love doesn't just win. It also costs. Giving yourself as a gift costs. Now, it's a good cost. It's a great cost because it's what we're designed for, but it costs. True love is seeing yourself as a gift. It's also really important to remember that the act of love that Christ had for us cost. And it wasn't just for him to die. And it wasn't just dying so that we may live. But deep, deep down, connected into that is the fact that it was about forgiveness. Love finds its most brutal, honest, foundational response for us in our world between each other in forgiveness. I think that's where it hits home the most. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is love at its most costly and therefore possibly its most authentic. If you want to get a gauge on how you're going with loving people, maybe consider how much of a grudge you hold about stuff. Or perhaps you should, could consider who you love and when you love them. You know, loving the lovable is easy. Loving your spouse when things are good, easy. Loving your kids when they're obedient, easy. Loving your boss when they treat you well, easy. 
But Jesus says to love your enemy. And he's not just talking about Adolf Hitler or ISIS, these kind of big extreme cases, which intellectually we can say, oh yeah, love the sinner, hate the sin. That's that's, That's actually easier to say that and to think that than to do what he is talking about as well, which is to love the real person who you really see every day or every couple of days, who really has, at least from your experience, wronged you, and to love and forgive them. And he's not just saying to tolerate them. He's not just saying to smile politely while harboring all of your ill thoughts kind of in your mind and holding back at all that justifiable vehemence that you've got for them. That's not what he's saying. He's saying to forgive them. He said it of the men that killed him while they were killing him. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. In a fallen world, forgiveness is the foundation of relationship, of all relationships. We are all broken and we all wrong each other. And therefore, any relationship needs to be built on a foundation of forgiveness. If you haven't forgiven someone, you can't have an authentic, loving relationship with them. Community, that is living according to our purpose and being truly human, requires us to truly love each other, to love each other with patience, kindness and humility. And this is a way out of the minefield, out of this obsession with ownership. This is a step, perhaps the biggest step, towards becoming truly human. Becoming truly human means looking more and more like Christ. And this incredible act of sacrifice and forgiveness and gifting himself for undeserving, unworthy people that he did is the prime example of true humanity. And we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it alone. We need God's grace. Wes finished last week talking about God's grace and that's the place to finish today. It's the place we should always finish because it's only through God's grace that we can do anything. As God has forgiven us, we are to forgive others. So let's continually ask him for help to love people better. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have created us with purpose, that we are designed to image you, and that when we fulfill our telos, when we fulfill our purpose, that is how we are truly human. And when we are truly human... That is where true joy and peace and shalom is found. But we cannot do this ourselves. I can't do it myself. I pray that you would, I ask that your grace would help me to be able to love better. Real, costly love for my kids, for my wife, for my family, for everyone that I know. And I pray the same thing for everyone here, that your grace would fill them and that you would speak to them, that you would not only challenge them, but then you would enable them, that your spirit would give them the grace and the compassion and the capacity to be able to truly, authentically love people in truth. And that through that, we would all become more human and we would all experience shalom. Amen.